to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. What are we watching today, Ben? Well, we've got, I think, a really special treat on the podcast today. For one thing, it's our final film in the calendar year 1932. We've had a lot of 1932 movies going yeah. all the way back to The Monster Walks and including Freaks and Murders in the Rue Morgue and Vampire and Eerie Tales and... There were a lot. Yeah. Uh, so this is our last film in the year 1932. Well, hopefully this will be better than the first film we watched in 1932. Yes. Uh, I think another reason why you're going to really enjoy this episode is when we watched The Mummy, we talked a lot about how that film was very tepid and not wanting to push those boundaries Mm -hmm. and you talked a lot about how you feel horror really needs to push boundaries and I think you're going to get a lot of that satisfaction in today's movie. Which is? Island of Lost Souls directed by Earl C. Kenton. It's a film adaptation of a literary work but the literary work has a different title. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells. Yeah. We haven't really done an H.G. Wells work uh, on the podcast yet, have we? No, and this won't be the last. H.G. Wells is quite prolific. (laughs) He's a little bit of a big deal. Yeah, to put it mildly. You might have heard of him. (laughs) Yeah, The Island of Dr. Moreau was published in 1896 by H.G. Wells. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about this author. There's a lot to him, so strap in. Gotcha. He was born in 1866 and he died in 1946, just short of his 80th birthday. He goes by H.G. Wells, but his full name is Herbert George Wells. Mm-hmm. He was born in Bromley, Kent, uh, the son of Joseph Wells, who was a professional cricket player, and Sarah Neal, who was a domestic servant. Uh, they were married. Okay. For a second I was like, oh, maybe I need to clarify. They were married. Yeah, no, my brow furrowed, so thanks for the clarification. And what's kind of interesting is uh, Joseph Wells and Sarah Neal, they ran this shop that sold china and sporting goods. <laughs> that seems like a terrible combination. Right? So as you can imagine, the shop didn't do super well. <laughs> uh, so a lot of the money came through Joseph Wells's cricket career. Sure. At eight years old, H.G., got a broken leg, and so in order to, like, keep himself entertained as he's, like, bedridden with this leg, he would read books from the library, and this would instill this love of literary worlds and of writing. Mm-hmm. At 11, H.G.'s dad got a broken ankle, if I okay. recall correctly, and so because the shop wasn't doing well enough to support the whole family, the family and the kids started doing apprenticeships. Mm-hmm. So um, H.G. would do various apprenticeships. Um, he worked as <laughs> he worked in retail as a draper, which really just means helping people pick out clothes. Oh, like you're draping the clothes on people. Okay, yeah. gotcha. And he also worked as a chemist's assistant. Okay. In 1883, at 17, he started to move into teaching as a career. 
Um, so he was a pupil teacher at Midhurst Grammar School. It seems like the reason he was into teaching is so he could still have access to books and stuff to continue studying his own interests. <laughs> that following year, in 1884, he earned himself a scholarship to study biology under Thomas Henry Huxley. This isn't Brave New World, Aldous Huxley, because mm -hmm. when I first read this I was like, what? But no, two different guys, obviously. But Thomas Henry Huxley is a biologist known as Darwin's bulldog for how strongly he advocated for Darwin's theory of evolution. Okay. Especially the part of Darwin's theories that argued humans were closely related to apes. Mm -hmm. Related is Thomas Henry Huxley coined the term agnosticism. Oh, okay. And he was one of the first to suggest birds evolved from dinosaurs. Oh, cool. Yeah, this is like in the 1800s. Yeah, it's yeah. It's pretty sweet. And the reason that I, I go into a little bit about this guy is Thomas Henry Huxley is in the book, The Island of Dr. Moreau. He's referred to as the tutor of the main character, Edward Prendick. So clearly H.G. had this interest in biology and science and things like that. He, along with other students during his school year, founded the Science School Journal, where he tried out um, some fiction writing. And there's actually an early draft of his The Time Machine novel published in this journal. Oh, cool. Doing his studies while also teaching, he earned himself a Bachelor of Science in Zoology in 1890, and... His first book ever was 1893's Textbook of Biology in two volumes. <laughs> so uh, if there's ever a um, trivial pursuit of what H.G. Wells' first book was, not The Time Machine, but this textbook. He would write journal articles to supplement his income, and because he was so successful in this, he decided to publish his first novel in 1895, The Time Machine, and he was 29 years old. Wow. Um, during this time between publishing that novel and teaching and getting his degree, um, he married his cousin, Isabel Mary Wells. Um, she was actually a year older than him. Unfortunately, they separated after three years of marriage when H.G. began seeing his student, Amy Catherine Robbins, and together they got married, moved to Woking, Surrey in 1895, where H.G.'s creativity flourished. Mm. So in Woking, Surrey, H.G. would write, publish, or start several of his books, um, including War of the Worlds, The Time Machine was published while he lived there, The Island of Dr. Moreau, um, The Wonderful Visit, The Wheels of Chance, When the Sleeper Wakes, Love and Mr. Lewisham. So a lot of his stuff. Right. Um, some of these books wouldn't be published until several years later, but a lot of the prep work was done in this place. That kind of gives you an idea of like how prolific H.G. Wells was. Just like the small little look into what he's done. He's known as the father of science fiction, so he's kind of a big deal. In all of his works, you can see him striving to make the story credible. Um, there's always a layer of realism to his works. Uh, and I guess there's kind of this like rule he had where each of his stories only contain one single extraordinary assumption. Yes. It's kind of interesting how he uses science as a substitute for magic. Yeah, and it was, you know, the idea that in science fiction, if your science was good everywhere else, you could get away with one crazy thing, basically. Exactly. Uh, and then everything could kind of flow naturally from that. 
Mm -hmm. He wrote much more than just science fiction, of course. He wrote much nonfiction, utopian fiction, and much more throughout his 80 years of, of being a writer. Um, that being said, Island of Dr. Moreau came pretty early in his career and was published in 1896. So, Island of Dr. Moreau follows this first-person narration of Edward Prendick, who has been shipwrecked. As I kind of mentioned earlier, uh, it's established that Edward has a scientific education, having been tutored by the real-life Thomas Henry Huxley. So Edward is picked up on a boat that is delivering animals to Moreau's island. And here Edward meets this guy named Montgomery and his bestial manservant, Ling. From his science education, Edward has heard of Moreau, who is a physiologist who was conducting experiments in what they call vivisection, which is really just surgery or experiments on live animals. Mm -hmm. So they get to the island, and uh, Montgomery kind of takes pity on Edward, kind of being like, the, the captain of the ship that saves Edward isn't very fond of having an outsider be involved in this stuff, uh, but Montgomery takes pity on him and brings him to the island, and so Edward is living within the compound on the island. And he overhears, during the night, Moreau experimenting on a puma, which is like a panther. Mm -hmm. To escape these horrific sounds, Edward goes into the jungle and comes across villagers who look like pigs. Edward is pursued uh, during this time in the jungle, and he takes down the pursuer, uh, who's clearly an animal-human hybrid. Edward questions Montgomery about all of this, but he doesn't get any answers. The next morning, he comes across a humanoid in bandages in Moreau's lab and concludes that Moreau is experimenting on people and that he's next. To escape this fate, Edward escapes back into the jungle again and meets the Sayer of the Law, an ape man who can speak. Moreau comes looking for Edward and he does his best to explain that the beast folk were animals turned human, not the result of human experimentation. Uh, he's been trying for 11 years to create an animal into a human, even with the incredible pain to the animal, uh, but all of these animals end up resorting back into the animals they originated from. Um, they always have these kind of animalistic features and these behaviors. Uh, so that's kind of the basics of this novel. Eventually, the puma woman breaks free. Moreau tries to capture her again, and they end up killing each other. Edward and Montgomery are left on the island with the beast folk, and they try to get along, and Edward is, is trying to leave the island to escape. During one night, he overhears Montgomery, Mling, and the Sayer of the Law get into a scuffle with the beast folk, and those three characters are killed. So now it's just Edward and the beast folk on this island. There doesn't seem to be any escape from it, and as Edward tries to survive um, and build a raft to get out, the beast folk eventually turn back into beasts. Edward is eventually saved and brought back to England, but he ends up living in solitude away from people because he's kind of traumatized and he always feels like people around him are about to revert back to being animals. Hmm. And part of the reason why The Island of Dr. Moreau is significant in science fiction, it's the first example in fiction of uplift, where an advanced race intervenes in the lower race's evolution and increases their intellect to kind of jump ahead, to mm -hmm. kind of uplift them to another step of the evolutionary chain. Other themes that are in this book include cruelty and pain, 
moral responsibility, interference with nature, and of course, the nature of man and identity. So The Island of Dr. Moreau was published, like, pretty early in H.G. Wells' career, uh, in 1896. He was writing throughout the 20th century, and contemporary with where we are now in the 1930s, he was focused on writing utopian fiction, critiques of fascist regimes, and historical nonfiction. What's kind of interesting is he was widely read in Germany before 1933, but then when the Nazis took power, he was banned and his books were burned. Hmm. And apparently H.G. Wells was listed in the Nazis' black book of people slated for immediate arrest should the Nazis successfully invade Britain. Oh, interesting. The Island of Dr. Moreau was adapted several times before this uh, adaptation. The first time was in 1911 in France, titled Isle de Pouvante. And in 1913, when that film was brought over to the U.S., it was renamed Island of Terror. (laughs) The second adaptation was actually in Germany. 1921, there was a German silent film called Die Insel der Wischolinen. And then the third adaptation is this film. Right. This film is coming to us from Paramount Pictures. We've seen two previous Paramount horror films on the list, which were the 1920 and 1931 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde films. Uh, So this is sort of the next foray into horror for that studio. To remind listeners, the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde had been very financially successful, grossing $1.25 million, and very well received critically. It had been nominated for several Oscars, including Best Cinematography and Best Actor for Frederick March. With that film being a great success, and of course it is also number one on the Scream Scene ranking of horror films, Paramount was very much willing to try again at the horror genre with mounting a big-budget horror movie production. Literary-based horror films continued to be the safest bet with critics and audiences in terms of success, Uh, and so Island of Dr. Moreau was chosen as a basis, largely because of the opportunities for grotesque makeup it provided for studio makeup artist Wally Westmore. Mm -hmm. The film's director, Earl C. Kenton, was an experienced hand, having been working in the industry since 1916. Uh, He'd been directing feature films since 1920, bouncing around from studio to studio, mostly on B-pictures. Island of Lost Souls was the first in a four-picture contract for Paramount that would last until 1935 when Kenton would move to Columbia, which was a smaller, cheaper studio. To adapt the novel into a screenplay, Paramount selected two notable names, Philip Wiley and Waldemar Young. Wiley was an accomplished author of science fiction, satire, and social criticism. His 1930 novel, Gladiator, concerns a man with super strength, superhuman leaping abilities, super speed, and bulletproof skin Hmm. who hides his powers from the world. Uh, It would be seen as a major influence on the creation of Superman eight years later. You don't say. His 1932 novel, The Savage Gentleman, would inspire pulp magazine hero Doc Savage, and his 1933 novel, When Worlds Collide, would inspire Flash Gordon and be adapted to film in 1951. Huh. Yeah, so this guy's kind of a big deal in science fiction, not so much for his works, but for what his works inspired. Yeah. His 1945 novel, The Paradise Crater, 
described Nazis using uranium bombs and got him placed under house arrest by the U.S. federal government as this book was published months before the first actual successful atomic test and the bomb was still top secret at that point. (laughs) Even so, after the war, Wiley would act as an advisor to the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. He died in 1971, his final novels largely being concerned with pollution and climate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, He also wrote a TV movie called Los Angeles 2017, uh, which is about L.A. in the year 2017, which was an early TV directing job for a young Steven Spielberg. Interesting. The other writer on Island of Lost Souls was Waldemar Young. Young was the grandson of Brigham Young the second president of the Church of Latter-day Saints, founder of Salt Lake City, and first governor of Utah Territory. Oh my god. Waldemar was born in 1878 in Salt Lake and started writing for films in 1916. Throughout the 1920s, he wrote many of the pictures of Todd Browning and Lon Chaney Sr., including The Unknown and London After Midnight. Okay. Uh, It is likely this background in macabre material that won him this job, as well as his work on recent Paramount hits like Love Me Tonight, uh, which was a successful musical that introduced the song Isn't It Romantic, and Sign of the Cross, a big-budget biblical epic by Cecil B. DeMille. Waldemar Young would die of pneumonia in 1938. The film's cinematography is by Oscar winner Carl Struss, who had shot Jekyll and Hyde previously, uh, and who we talked about a lot in that episode. He was a highly accomplished cinematographer. He was nominated for his second Oscar for Jekyll and Hyde uh, and had decades of experience. The movie would be shot on location at Catalina Island and at the Paramount Ranch near Malibu, with real foliage and fog supplemented by sets and greens. The immense makeup job of creating the various beast men fell to Wally Westmore, who had done the makeup for Hyde the year before. It was one of the largest scale specialty makeup jobs yet attempted. The Paramount lot was sort of invaded by these extras in this beast folk makeup, you know, when they would go on break to like the commissary and stuff, (laughs) and people kind of freaked out. All told, the budget for Island of Lost Souls was $300,000. Lower than Jekyll and Hyde, but higher than, say, The Mummy. Okay. What is that in today's money? About $5.3 million. For the lead role of Dr. Moreau, Paramount cast British actor Charles Lawton. We last saw Lawton very recently in The Old Dark House, where we gave some information on his background. Uh, That was his first Hollywood film after coming to the United States. Since then, he has appeared in four films. Uh, As the villainous Commander Sturm in Devil in the Deep, where he was considered the best part of an otherwise bad movie. (laughs) Uh, He was in Payment is Deferred, where he plays a man who murders for money. He was in If I Had a Million, which was an anthology picture. And he was in... The Sign of the Cross, which was a Paramount historical Roman epic film, as I mentioned earlier, directed by Cecil B. DeMille, where Lawton gained a lot of critical acclaim for his performance as Nero, Uh, and this movie was immensely popular. That's kind of, in a lot of ways, the movie that made his reputation as an actor. The film's romantic lead is portrayed by Richard Arlen, 
who was one of Paramount's contract movie stars at the time. He had been a fighter pilot in the Canadian Royal Flying Corps in World War I and got his start in the movie business as a film lab delivery boy. (laughs) He appeared in Wings in 1927 as one of the leads, and this World War I Flying Aces Love Triangle movie would be the first to win the Oscar for Best Picture. Um, So that was a significant hit for him. Since then, Arlen has made the jump to talkies and stayed very busy for Paramount. Island of Lost Souls was his sixth film that year alone. Uh, So he was basically just, you know, a handsome leading man star actor, basically. Joining Arlen is Layla Himes as one of the movie's two female leads. We last saw Himes in Freaks as Venus, and her most notable role in between was a supporting part in the controversial Gene Harlow movie, Redheaded Woman. The other main female role in this film was that of the hybrid Lota the Panther Woman. As a publicity stunt, Paramount held a nationwide contest to cast the part in July 1932 with over 60,000 applicants. The winner was Kathleen Burke, a 19-year-old dental assistant from Chicago. Burke would go on to appear in 17 films over the next six years, but uh, grew unhappy with Hollywood and her typecasting as a sex symbol and retired in 1938 at the age of 25. Wow. So she's like 19. Yes, in this movie. Gosh. This brings us to the member of the cast that we perhaps are most familiar with, Bela Lugosi. Lugosi had been let go from his Universal Studios contract after the underperformance of Murders in the Room Morgue near the start of the year. The success of the independently produced White Zombie was a bounce back, but Lugosi's decision to take a flat salary instead of a percentage hurt him financially in the long run. In September, he appeared as the villainous Roxor in Fox's adventure film Shandu the Magician, which is kind of like a 1930s Doctor Strange type movie. In December, he appeared in The Death Kiss from minor studio SonoArt, uh, which is a movie about a series of murders on a movie set. Uh, Lugosi plays the studio manager with Edward Van Sloan as the director of the movie and David Manners as the writer who solves the mystery. (laughs) By the time he shot Island of Lost Souls, Lugosi's financial situation had worsened and he was on the edge of bankruptcy. He accepted the role of the Speaker of the Law, despite it being fairly small and despite his appearance being almost entirely obscured under Westmore's makeup, which Lugosi had been unwilling to do for Frankenstein. Lugosi was paid only $800 for his appearance in the film, with Paramount, meanwhile, using his name for promotional advantage by billing him second on all the posters, despite the small part. Uh, But it was a major studio film, and thus it was a major chance for Lugosi uh, to kind of get things back on track in his mind. So essentially both parties were using the other for publicity. Mm. But certainly, you know, the future success of his career, which was going through this downward slope, was dependent on this big studio horror film kind of getting him back in the public eye in a big way. Mm -hmm. So Island of Lost Souls would premiere at the tail end of December 1932. 
to an extremely mixed and occasionally outright hostile reaction. The film's themes of vivisection, experimentation on men and animals, and insinuation of bestiality provoked a sensation in the public. Mm -hmm. Some critics praised the film as the greatest horror freak show yet made, while others were reluctant to recommend it to audiences due to its themes and its sadism. In urban centers and areas with greater support for the genre, the film did make money. It was not a financial flop. But across America, it was under constant challenge from local censor boards who made cuts and trims as they saw fit. H.G. Wells distanced himself from the movie. He was displeased with the emphasis on horror over philosophical themes, and he was also unhappy with the changes made to the character of Moreau, who Wells did not see as villainous, but rather as a misguided visionary. Mm -hmm. The film was outright banned in 12 countries, including Sweden and, most significantly, the United Kingdom. We've mentioned in the past couple episodes that horror films like The Mummy and The Old Dark House had actually done better financially in the UK than in the US. Mm -hmm. And in the early days of sound, the UK was an important overseas market for Hollywood. But um, that country, unlike the US, did have a national level censorship agency. Uh, Since 1912, the British Board of Film Censors issued certificates to approved films with different ratings, very similar to the modern familiar system. But Island of Lost Souls was refused certification and thus not shown in the United Kingdom due to its depiction of vivisection, which you couldn't show in films in the UK, uh, as well as cruelty to animals, which was a no-go topic for film in the UK, Um, but also Moreau's blasphemy, um, his god complex, um, and in their final determination, the BBFC said that the film was, quote, against nature, unquote. A comment to which Charles Lawton's wife, actress Elsa Lancaster, famously replied, yes, and so is Mickey Mouse, Nevertheless, the censor complaints against the film signaled a sea change in the way in which horror films were regarded in the U.S. and also abroad. Island of Lost Souls would not see re-release in the U.S. after the production code was enforced in 1934, uh, remaining out of the public eye until it showed up in an edited form on late-night TV broadcasts in the early 1960s. Similarly, it would not be approved to be shown in the UK at all until 1958, when the BBFC would rate the film X, meaning at the time that it was suitable only for ages 16 and up. In either country, the film would not appear uncut on home video until 2011, when it was released by the Criterion Collection, restored to its original content. Uh, Modern critics regard it as the best film version of the novel, and it entered American counterculture in the late 1970s due to the sort of late-night TV showings, kind of turning it into a cult classic, uh, influencing a lot of counterculture artists, particularly the new wave band Devo, which based a lot of its lyrics and themes on the movie. Huh. Uh, For example, there's a very famous Devo album which says, Question, are we not men? 
answer. We are Devo, uh, which is a reference to dialogue in this movie. Yeah. So how are we watching this movie? Well, today, Island of Lost Souls is available on Blu-ray and DVD from Criterion. If you are in a region that has access to Criterion's library to stream, that's a good way to see it. If you are in Canada, where we are, you can watch it on Blu-ray or DVD from the Criterion Collection, but there are no current online options. Unfortunately, it's not something we can add to the YouTube playlist. If you would still like to see our website, you can visit screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Till then, we'll watch the movie, and we'll be right back after a brief musical interlude. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone welcome back to scream scene we just finished watching island of lost souls sarah what is the law are we not men (laughs) (laughs) so we've both seen this movie before yes did you find that your opinion on it had changed seeing it a second time after having done the podcast or has your take on it remained about the same it's a little bit on the same I think I enjoyed Charles Lawton more. Mm. What about for you? I really enjoyed this the first time I saw it, and I really enjoyed it this time. I really like this movie. Do you like the same things, or did, did like the same things stand out to you, or did you notice more significant things? I think it was about the same, to be honest. Oh, okay. Yeah. The movie's a little bit different from the book. Yes. <laughs> uh, we start with Edward Parker getting picked up by a ship after being adrift on a lifeboat after a shipwreck. I suspect the last name changed because it's an American actor, and maybe Parker sounds more heroic and American than, um, what was it, Prendick? Yeah. Yeah. So he gets picked up. He's uh, going to meet his fiance in Samoa, so he telegraphs ahead to let her know, like, hey, I've been picked up, I'm safe, everything's fine. The ship that he's on is carrying a cargo of animals, and one of the people he meets on the ship is a Dr. Montgomery, who has a servant named Maling, who looks a bit strange. At a certain point, Parker gets into a bit of a row with the captain of the ship, who's something of a drunk and mistreats Maling, and Parker doesn't really take kindly to that. The captain doesn't really take kindly to Parker, so... When they reach their first port to drop off all of these animals, the captain throws Parker overboard and makes him the problem of Dr. Moreau, who all of these animals have been delivered to, uh, and who is also employing Dr. Montgomery, who gets off at this point as well. They go to Moreau's island, uh, which is somewhere in the area of the Polynesian Islands. Moreau sort of tells Parker, like, it's fine that you're here, We'll send you away in the morning, um, but I have to rely on you to be discreet about everything that you see here. Uh, But I'll take you up to my house. And Montgomery's all like, oh, are you sure that's a good idea? And Rose's like, yeah, I know what I'm doing, shut up. Traveling to the house, uh, they see a lot of the natives of the island who are these strange 
hairy, disfigured kind of looking people, and Moreau's tr- kind of trying to just tell Parker that, yeah, that's just what the natives here look like. They make it to the house, some pleasantries are exchanged, and then Moreau introduces Parker to Lota, who he tells Parker is a pure Polynesian, and she's sort of dressed up in that kind of garb, um, and it's semi-plausible that maybe that's what she is. And he leaves them alone for a little while to observe them. However, Parker and Lota's getting to know each other is interrupted by the sound of screaming, and when Parker goes to investigate, he discovers Moreau and Montgomery seemingly operating on a live human man. Uh, And this freaks Parker right out, and he decides that Moreau's a crazy person operating on live human subjects, and they might be next, and we gotta get out of here, and he grabs Lota, runs out of the house, trying to get to the boat. They get sort of cornered in the jungle by the quote-unquote natives, and taken to this village, and things are looking bad, and that's when Moreau shows up, bangs a gong, and has this back and forth with the Speaker of the Law, Bella Lugosian, kind of a wolfman kind of look. <laughs> it's this back and forth where Moreau asks, what is the law? And Bella Lugosi says back what the law is three times. The laws are not to run on all fours, not to eat meat, and not to spill blood. After each law is recited, the Speaker of the Law says, are we not men? And the chorus replies, are we not men? Uh, and that is the law. Moreau gets Parker and Loda back to his house, and he's saying, like, hey, this is why I told you, like, you're going to go in the morning. It's fine. So the next morning comes, they head down to the docks, and oh, the boat's wrecked. How could Moreau have ever have seen something like this happening? I guess you're just stuck here till the next supply ship comes. Oops. Parker confronts Moreau about, like, what he's doing on this island. Like, who are these natives? What are these experiments? What's going on? And Moreau explains to him that he's developed a process for speeding up the evolution of animals by operating on them through a combination of plastic surgery, glandular stuff, vivisection, um, transplants, blood transfusions, to slowly turn an animal over a series of operations into a more human form. And Parker's pretty disgusted by this, but he really, at this point, just wants to go home, and obviously, if he raises any fuss, Moreau's pretty dangerous, so best to just keep quiet. Meanwhile, back in Samoa, Parker's fiance Ruth Thomas, has received his wireless from the ship, but when the ship gets there and he's not on it, she's pretty concerned. She's pretty badass. <laughs> she basically threatens the ship captain by going to the American consulate and getting the captain like threatened with having his license revoked so that he has to tell them where he dropped Parker off. And she gets another captain, Captain Donahue, to agree to take her to this island to rescue Parker. Meanwhile, Lota, who is very attracted to Parker, keeps trying to interest him and... Even though Parker protests that he's got this fiance, he kind of gives in to his baser side uh, until he notices that Lota's got, like, you know, claws instead of hands uh, and realizes what's up and goes to Moreau. And yeah, Moreau explains, like, yeah, she's a panther that I turned into a woman. She's the best experiment I've got. She's the closest to human I've achieved. And I was curious to see 
I could get her to fuck a dude because she won't go near me or Montgomery and you showed up and it was perfect. And Parker is like incensed with this. He was willing to overlook the whole island full of horrible <laughs> genetic mutants. But this is a bridge too far, Moreau. Yeah. It's about this time in the story when um, Ruth and Captain Donahue show up on the island to look for Parker. Come to Moreau's home, and Moreau plays the gracious, polite host like he's been doing the whole time, and turns to Montgomery, he's like, ooh, more people, like I might not even need Parker now. Uh, and they all have dinner, and Moreau proposes very sensible, but also very useful for him, sleeping arrangements for everyone, where Parker and Donahue get a room together, and Ruth's going to take a room by herself. This enables Moreau to kind of do some shenanigans. He gets Donahue very drunk at dinner, for one, uh, and then after everyone goes to bed, he lets one of the beast men, uh, Uran, into the house compound, and basically just like makes it clear that if Uran wants a piece of Ruth, Moreau will look the other way. So our damsel gets threatened, gets to scream a bit, the men get to chase Uran off, and Donahue's like, well, fuck this place, let's get out of here. And by this point, Montgomery, whose whole backstory is that he was like a medical student who went to prison. Was going to go to prison. Was going to go to prison for crime. And Moreau picked him up and convinced him to like come along. His conscience has finally gotten the best of him. And he's decided that, yeah, he wants out of here too. And he'll help them all escape. Donahue figures he'll go to his ship, which is still sort of off the coast of the island, and get his crew uh, and come back and rescue everyone. Seeing Donahue go out into the jungle, Moreau tells Uran, like, yeah, go go kill him. And Uran's like, well, sure, but what about the law? Moreau's like, yeah, don't worry about it, it's fine. <laughs> so Uran goes after Donahue and kills him. And then the rest of the beast folk, including the speaker of the law, show up and they're like, hey, you killed that guy. That's against the law. And Uran's like, yeah, but like Moreau said, it was fine. So it's fine. And the beast's like, wait, so the law doesn't count for shit? And it's like, yeah. Like, well, if you could kill this man... Does that mean we could kill Moreau? It's like, mm, yeah, the math on that checks out. <laughs> All right, fuck, let's kill him. So <laughs> the beast folk revolt, and Moreau goes out to the village with his whip, thinking that he can just do the litany of the law and calm them down again, but it doesn't work. And the Speaker of the Law and Uran lead the beast folk in a revolution of sorts <laughs> against Moreau and kind of descend on him. Moreau's like, hey, like, this is the house of pain, like... I'm the guy who created you. I, I bring pain. Like, you can't do this to me. They're like, oh, yeah, this is the House of Pain. Yeah, let's bring him to the operation room and fucking cut him open with shit. Yeah, that's a great idea, Moreau. Thanks. And so they bring him to the operating table. Moreau suffers a horrible, horrible fate while Montgomery, Ruth, and Parker try to make it to the docks. Oh, and then Parker's like, wait, we have to rescue Loda, though. So they grab Loda. They're off into the jungles. Uran follows them and attacks and basically so that everyone else can escape, Lota fights with Uran. After a while, everyone realizes that Lota's not with them anymore. Parker goes back, and Lota has killed Uran, but is also going to die. It's tragic. Then they all get on the boat. The Beast Folk have, like, essentially lit the whole island on fire. And Montgomery, Ruth, and Parker are in a little rowboat rowing back to the ship. And Montgomery's just like, yeah, don't look back. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. I think this movie does a really good job of doing that H.G. Wells rule of, like, there's only one thing that's incredible, everything else could be, 
credible. Sure. Like, this film feels like on the realistic side of horror. For sure. Like, there's no... There's nothing supernatural really happening here. As long as you can believe that Moreau somehow has found a way to uplift these animals, the rest makes sense. Yeah. I think, um, like, obviously there's uh, some racism, some sexism going on in this movie. Um, But overall, I think it succeeds as a horror movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean... I don't know where your opinion may lie on this, but I think the novel might be more science fiction and the movie more horror. And I think the fact that H.G. Wells distanced himself from this movie is indicative of that as well. There's just something in the way this movie is shot and presented that makes it very inescapably horror, right? Like, it's clear watching the movie what genre this is, even if maybe just in terms of plot information, you might think it's like kind of a sci-fi adventure story. That's definitely a great point. I think if there had been the electrodes and alchemical sets (laughs) and everything in The House of Pain, and definitely if it was shot a little differently, it would fall a bit more towards science fiction. Sure. But I think the fact that it feels grounded in reality in a really strange way makes it take a step back from that science fiction genre. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that Wells didn't like about the adaptation is something that makes it very clearly horror, which is the way that Charles Lawton plays Moreau, where there isn't that sort of Colin Clive as Henry Frankenstein feel of like, I'm a visionary scientist and all I did was go too far. Instead, like, no, Moreau's mad. He always has been mad. He's just playing everyone against each other and taking a lot of delight in it. Like, it's very clear how sadistic he is in the way that, you know, he sets people up to die and then sort of slyly smiles in the darkness as he watches them go off to their deaths and stuff. Yeah, his cruel and manipulative nature comes through Lawton's acting just so clear while still having that, like, upper-class British... Hospitality. Hospitality. Charm. Charm. He's got charm, yeah. Uh, it's He does a really good job. Yeah, we talked about in our Old Dark House episode that the accent he had in that movie was closer to his natural accent, and here he's putting on that received pronunciation, Eastern English, upper class accent. And you would never be able to tell. Mm-hmm. Certainly, like, if this was a science fiction film, there'd be a sense that... You know, Moreau's pursuit of knowledge was noble, but he went too far in infringing on the rights of God, right? I feel like that's the science fiction take on it. What makes this horror is the sense that, like, even though everything I just said is still in the story, that's not so much the focus as the focus is on these people being trapped on this island with this guy, (laughs) right? Like, the story isn't so much about Moreau's hubris, even though that's, you know, what brings him down. The story is about, like, being trapped with a madman in a dangerous situation. (laughs) And he's the only person who can really keep you safe. With his control of the natives being, you know, the only thing between you and death, and you can't really trust him either. Yes. For me, a lot of the horror comes from a little bit of the hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Like... Are we not men? 
yet they are not treated as such. Mm-hmm. Um, the harm that comes to them is kind of hand-waved away because in Moreau's mind, they are still just animals, despite... Yeah, and they're his property as yeah. well. So for me, it's like a lot of the horror comes from that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the fact is that what brings Moreau down is his hypocrisy because he doesn't value his own laws. Yes. Um, he's taught these beast folk that they are men, but he doesn't regard them as such. Uh, he's taught them not to kill, but then he turns around and tells them to. And, you know, their moment of realization is when the speaker of the law says, like, we are not men, we are not beasts, what are we? We are things. They sort of realize the horror of their own existence, right? Yeah. The law was always self-serving. It was designed to protect Moreau and further his ends more than anything else. It's not really for the beast folk, it's for him. And the way that he trained his creations was such that basically one indiscretion brought the whole house of cards down because, like, hey, if this doesn't mean anything, why do we need to follow it, right? Yeah. One of the other things we talked about that really gives it the horror atmosphere of this film is the look of it. It does a lot with the use of shadow, but specifically the use of light and where the light is shining from. Yeah, for sure. Um, There's a great moment when... We get a bit more insight into Moreau when he's monologuing, <laughs> and there's a light coming from underneath his chin mm-hmm. uh, in like an otherwise fairly dark room. And I find that a lot of my critiques of the films that we're watching, when they don't quite go far enough for me, I'm always like, there needs to be more shadow. Yeah. Where's the German expressionism in this movie? I feel like this movie could probably still have had more shadow. But what oh, really? they had, what they had was great. A horror movie has to look like a horror movie, not yeah. like a sitcom. And I think this movie really achieves it. Like, if there's something I love about this movie kind of before everything else, I would say it's the cinematography. Um, it has really dark, deep blacks. Uh, you know, they're not afraid to just not light things. Mm-hmm. Which, like, a lot of the potential for terror kind of comes from invoking a fear of maybe what might be hiding in those shadows. Yeah, you see these beast folk creeping in and out of the bushes, mm-hmm. and so when you can't see the room, it's there's a very high chance that there might be someone else in the room. Or they'll do shots where where we're watching the characters, but foregrounded in silhouette, we might be behind some of the beast folk who are also watching them. Mm-hmm. There's also, like, a lot of really powerful use of moving camera, I found in this movie. Yeah. Particularly, like, crane shots, right? Where we're kind of swooping over crowds or through things on a crane. It's kind of the best way to move through a jungle. For sure. Yeah, I mean, especially considering they did shoot a lot of this on location, you can't really lay down a lot of dolly track. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. It definitely helped the movie move along, Mm -hmm. because there's no score. Yes, I mean, it's not like this movie gets boring in parts, but I think a big part of that comes from the acting, from the performances, as well as this moving camera. Yeah, for sure. There's sort of music at the start and end, and then the rest is just kind of silent so that the dialogue can take the forefront. But I think you're right that the moving camera, as well as the editing, keeps the pace going. Yeah, this movie's tight. It doesn't lag anywhere 
the horror of it all still keeps you in the movie, right? Yeah. At no point does the film let up and sidestep into pastoral or try right. to distract you with what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, at every point, it's it's holding you to the flame. Yeah. One thing, you know, speaking of the pacing that I really appreciated in terms of how the narrative is constructed is the build-up in the story, which I thought was kind of just the right pace. We sort of keep Moreau and his island and the nature of his experiments a mystery just long enough for it to intrigue. But, like, once it's sort of clear to the audience what's happening, the story is allowed to have the dialogue and explain itself rather than kind of dragging things on further, right? We're not expected to still be wondering what's going on in this island in the last ten minutes. It's not going to try and pull some sort of third act twist of like, oh, actually, they're animals. It's like, no, they're animals. We know. And so I think that really helps the pacing. It always helps pacing in a story when the story is allowed to be honest about what it's about as an audience member figures it out, rather than trying to keep things a mystery too long after Mm -hmm. the audience knows what's up. Like, Dr. Moreau is pretty upfront with Montgomery about just what Loda is. Mm -hmm. And it's the first night, it's like 15 minutes into the movie, that we see the first experiment. Yeah, absolutely. And that's sort of what I mean is that, you know, there is a section of the movie where you're hearing about Moreau on the boats and stuff, and it's like, what's going on? Why does he need these animals? And he's not super upfront with Parker immediately, but we don't dick around with it, mm-hmm. right? It's not the mystery of Dr. Moreau, it's the, the island, island, and here we are, right? And I really appreciated that. We've, we've sort of said that the there's stuff in the construction of the story, and the way the performances are, and the, the lighting and the mood that makes this horror. What I find really refreshing about this movie at this point <laughs> in the timeline, as yeah. it were, yeah. is the things that make it sort of different from a lot of the movies we've seen so far. Okay. I mean, obviously, you've still got the, like, young, engaged couple at the center of it. Yeah. But otherwise, it's very much like a change of pace in the plots and settings compared to, like, a lot of what we've seen up to this point. I mean, Ruth does get threatened, but for a large portion of the movie, sort of before that, it's it's Parker who's under threat, and the structure of the plot's a little bit different because it's, you know, not Moreau himself. It's sort of Moreau enacting threats upon people. And with the sort of jungle island mysterious setting and the, like, rich benefactor who you can't really trust, there's sort of a similarity and feel here to, like, something like The Most Dangerous Game. Yeah. Or even, like, King Kong with the kind of, like, <laughs> ships moving through the fog to this mysterious, dangerous island. Um, And that's sort of why I said that, like, on a beat-by-beat plot basis, you could mistake this for, like, an adventure movie or uh, something like that if you weren't sitting there watching it where you're like, nope, this is definitely horror. I see what you're saying about Parker being threatened, but any time that Parker is being, like, explicitly threatened, it's really by the Beast Folk, and it's really because Lord is with them, and the Beast Folk are more enraptured by Lorda. Yeah, it's worth saying that, uh, you know, Dr. Moreau's definitely got that sexist streak in him because he made, like, an entire society of beast folk before realizing he'd made all of them men. So Lorda's the only uh, woman on the island. So as much as Moreau wants to mate her with a human to further his experiments, definitely the beast folk have their own curiosity about her. 
Yeah, and it is kind of just bullshit <laughs> that the minute that, like, Parker is concerned about these experiments is when he realizes that you've done this to a woman. Mm-hmm. Like, he explicitly says, like, how could you do this to, like, a woman? How could you give a, an animal a woman's feelings and emotions? And even Montgomery, too, uh, starts to feel this moral responsibility, a bit because of Lorda, but then, like, he sees that Moreau wants to use Ruth Mm -hmm. to go with the Beast Men. He's like, I'm no longer having any part of this. Like, it's only because of the threats to women that people start to grow a backbone. Yeah, like, Parker's pretty disgusted by the Beast Folk once he learns what they are. But he's kind of in a place of, like, um, I'm just going to get off this island and get away from here. Like, he doesn't, he's not for the experiments, but he's not willing to really do anything about it. He explicitly says that I was willing to let things slide until I found out about her. Yeah, exactly. Like, he was just going to get out with his life, but now because he knows about Loda, he's going to, like, go and tell the world, basically. And, yeah, your point about Montgomery is also very well taken. I do like that Lorda gets to kill Oran, mm-hmm. um, because it's, like, cool, like, she gets to, like, save them. Yeah. Uh, she has no clear injuries. No. <laughs> Why does she have to die? I was, I was sort of wondering, like, what the story rationale for that was, because, like you said, she seems to kick his ass and then just kind of falls over dead for the tragedy of it. In the book... She dies in a scuffle with Moreau. Oh, interesting. Is that when Moreau dies in the book? Like, do they kill each other? Yes. That would have been a pretty badass. I mean, badass way for her to go, you would have lost the horrific element of the beast folk vivisecting Moreau themselves, which I feel is a a horror element for this movie. Yeah, and I feel like it... Like, that ending needs to be in here, Mm -hmm. but I suspect that that's why she dies in this film. I was wondering if it was because the ethics of the movie had decided that there was no place for her in the outside world, that it was sort of cleaner to just keep everyone on this island, but we have to at least try to get Loda off because in some ways... She's a woman and we gotta save her. Yeah, well, and in some ways, Moreau's whole experiment of trying to make her human enough that we regard her as human kind of works in terms of the way the audience's mind divides her from the others. Mm Mm-hmm. The other thing about her death is I feel like it's also a way to, like, firmly assure the audience that once the story is over, Parker will stay with Ruth and not be tempted into a bestial relationship with Loda, too. Yeah. Uh, like, it kind of, like, keeps that clean. You know what I mean? For sure. Clean break. Yeah. But it does sometimes feel like it's just there for, like, easy pathos as well. The movie kind of does everything that it can to duck the question of whether Parker might have bedded Loda eventually. It creates these scenarios to get out of answering that. Like, he's clearly attracted enough to her to kiss her, despite his own protestations about Ruth seconds earlier. And he really only backs off when he learns her origins. Yet, even after that, he still regards her as human enough to warrant saving, like we just said. There's there's still clearly a sense of thinking of her as a woman, even if she's not quite woman enough for you to go all the way. You know what I mean? You know, they knew that that was the element of this movie that was going to 
ruffle the most feathers in terms of hitting on a taboo. Mm. And they wanted to... The, the movie kind of leaves it a little bit ambiguous of what Parker's true feelings really are. Because even after he finds out about Loda, like, he's more angry at Moreau, but he still values Loda enough to want to try and uh, rescue her and stuff. Yeah, I wonder if that's also just a way to differentiate him from Moreau mm. um, and Montgomery from Moreau as well. Because Moreau is very cruel. Like, he comes at her when, like, after Parker confronts Moreau. Yeah, he's angry that that Parker found out, so he's punishing Loda for it. Yeah, and um, he, like, grabs her by the hair to show Montgomery that she's crying, to be like, see, I haven't failed, she is truly human, <laughs> whatever. Moreau has the same definition of human as the last unicorn. If, <laughs> if she cries, she's human. <laughs> Moreau just dehumanizes pretty much everyone around him, even the human humans, Mm -hmm. you know, not just the beast folk. Yeah, everyone's just there for his experiments. You know, everyone's just there for how can they help Moreau. Yeah, so, like, definitely Parker going back for Loda, but also Montgomery being like, no, there won't be any House of Pain ever again. Mm -hmm. Um, That's clearly to show that they are different from our other lead. Right. I mean, granted, they're not quite different enough to want to do anything for the beast folk that aren't Loda. You could chalk that up to sexism. That's what I'm sort of saying. Ah. Um, The other thing about leaving the beast folk behind uh, is I feel like it fits in with uh, Loda's death in terms of keeping things clean in the ending. It feels very Jurassic Park to me. (laughs) I mean, that's true. But I feel like one of the major differences... Here is, at least in the movie of Jurassic Park, when they leave the island, there's a feeling that they're just leaving an island of dinosaurs behind, which, of course, is, like, why there's three sequels to that movie. (laughs) But in this film, you know, there's the bit where, after Parker finds out about Loda and Moreau is kind of harassing her and, and punishing her, you know, he's trying to figure out how Parker found it out, and he spots the claws. And he has this line about how the beast flesh creeps back. Mm-hmm. And so the movie doesn't make it quite as clear as the novel, but it is letting us know that basically without continual operations, these experiments will revert. And I think that's why one of the laws is to not walk on all fours, because it's a behavioral thing as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, the laws are partly about keeping Moreau safe, and also partly about not reverting back to more animal-like behavior. Hence the no meat as well. Exactly. And this sort of enables the story to leave them all behind on the island at the end with the certainty that like they're not going anywhere. We know as an audience that they're just all going to revert back to animal forms and it's fine. And unlike Jurassic Park, all of these animals are male and cannot switch reproductive <laughs> organs yeah. and will die out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the old dark house, there's kind of a feeling here of having gone through an ordeal with these characters. Oh, for sure. You're right that it it certainly is reminiscent of Jurassic Park. (laughs) Um, But unlike that movie, or so many of the Universal movies, or their imitators, what struck me about this movie is there's no, like, chipper jokes or hopeful lighting uh, at the end to undercut the sense of trauma. Mm -hmm. Like, it's a happy ending in the sense that our heroes have escaped with their lives, 
But, like, it's this very dark scene of the three of them rowing away from this island that's all on fire, and the last line of the movie is just Montgomery saying, don't look back. You know, it's like, it feels like just a little bit more recognizing of what the proper emotional tone in that moment should be. You know, because even Old Dark House kind of ended with like, oh, we're getting married. Good morning. Like, it's fine. (laughs) You know? Yes. (laughs) But seeing Moreau get his comeuppance from the very beasts he created, Mm -hmm. there is this kind of satisfaction there. Yes, it's it's totally a narratively satisfying ending. It's totally a happy ending. It's it's definitely the ending that like the movie would have, you know, because good is triumphed over evil and all of that. I just mean that the tone, the the emotional feeling coming out is one that acknowledges that even if like right has won, we're all going to be a little fucked up for a while. You yeah. know, as opposed to saying like that you can kind of just like you know, whereas even Jurassic Park like Everyone's a little bit shooken up, but ultimately we're going to look out the window and see a sunset and a seagull flying or something and have a the musical swell and everything's fine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it feels more acknowledging of trauma, even though right has prevailed. What I was kind of going for was the audience would be cheering for the fact that Moreau got his comeuppance. Yes. Um, so you don't need a witty charming line at the end because we've kind of already gotten the fulfilling ending right sure. i feel like when we have lines like at at the end of the old dark house where it's like oh yes now we shall be married the cold light of morning is here or whatever mm-hmm. it's to give us like another sense of that narrative fulfillment because we've spent a lot of that film being like oh they've fallen in love and stuff whereas this film has not had any any detractions from the horror. Yeah, There's that's no love story. Like, they try with Lorda, or I should say Moreau tries, mm-hmm. but there's none of that. I mean, I do think that I don't really know if an audience would be coming away from Moreau being thrown onto the vivisection table with kind of like a fist pump, like, yeah, because that scene is portrayed so horrifically with, like, the way Moreau screams and stuff. It's like, yes, he's getting his comeuppance, but he's getting his comeuppance in that very horrific way that, say, like, the doctor at the end of Vampire does or the characters at the end of Freaks do, where you're not like, yeah! Like, you're more like, oh, shit, you know? This is, I don't know, I was like, fuck him up, Bella. Yeah, for sure. But, like, I just think that the, the way that scene is framed for the sure. audience, is more horrific. Um, yes. And, and even the way the music, which, like, the music does come back at the end, but it doesn't feel like, you know, victory music from the end of Star Wars. <laughs> no one's getting a medal or anything. Yeah. So, before we kind of dive into the theme of this movie a little more deeply, I just wanted to talk about some of the acting. Yes. This movie has very good performances. Everyone's good. I don't think there's, like, a bad performance in this movie. Um, That being said, uh, this movie is in a list of possessions belonging to Charles Lawton. This movie belongs, he owns this movie. It is his and his alone. Yeah, the guy playing Parker does a good job as Parker, but, like, it's just kind of the, like, standard 
lead? I think he's my favorite of the standard leads so far, though. You like him better than David Manners? Oh, for sure. (laughs) There's something, like, a little bit more real to his emotions, and, like, even the way when they pick him up from sea at the start, and he's kind of all shook from his shipwreck, and, like, the way that he gets frustrated with Moreau, and, like, he just seems emotionally more real, even though he is that same kind of flat protagonist character. Yeah. Having a real American accent maybe helps instead of that, like, transatlantic, half-British, half-American accent. (laughs) Um, And, like, Leela Himes is really good. Uh, Kathleen Burke is pretty good for this being, like, kind of her first movie after being picked up off the street from being a dental assistant. Um, She does a good job being cat-like. Yeah, for sure. Montgomery, that actor is really good. But, like, Charles Lawton. Yeah. His sort of magnetic megalomania as Moreau, it dominates the screen so thoroughly that, like, personally for me, that's largely what I walk away remembering from this movie. I walk away remembering Charles Lawton. And like you were saying earlier, he's got that sort of charm about him that makes him that sort of style of villain where even as we hate him, we don't really want to be watching a scene that he's not in. We just yeah. want to ha- keep having him on the screen. <laughs> and, like, even as we rejoice in, like, him getting his comeuppance, like, we've enjoyed every second we've spent with him because he's just kind of delicious. Yeah. Was that a pun? Oh, no, it wasn't. Oops, no. Conversely, mm. this is maybe Bela Lugosi's weakest film? Yeah, I mean, there's not... A lot of Bela Lugosi in this movie. He's two eyes sticking out from a face of hair and then a few lines of dialogue. Yeah. That said, even though he's maybe basically wasted, I think by casting him as the Speaker of the Law, it does lend a kind of memorable hypnotic power to the scenes where they're reciting the litany of the law, those Mm. two sequences, that help them be very memorable. It turns those scenes into some of the movie's most memorable, quotable dialogue, which I think really helps emphasize the importance of the way that Moreau controls these animals and then the way those animals, the beast folk, overthrow his control. I think if there was, even though it's a waste of Bela Lugosi's talents, if there was an actor who didn't have the presence of Bela Lugosi in that part, you know, if that part was just one of these other rando extras they've got grunting their way through the makeup it wouldn't work as well. There's probably a practical reason for this. The Speaker of the Law, I don't know if you noticed, is fully dressed. Yeah, he's got a shirt. And and pants. Um, And none of the other beast folk are as fully dressed as him. Um, So this could be, like, a way to visually point to him as, like, hey, this one particular character is important. It could be Bailey Lugosi being like, I'm not spending... 20 hours in the the chair to put hair all over me. But it does give this feeling of, like, if you follow the law, you become more man. Are we not men? Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. Like, the other beast folk, there's something about it that's a little comical about, like, these big, hairy, monstrous guys with these animalistic faces, but, like, they're all kind of wearing trousers with belts. There's just something about that that's a little funny. But you're right, like... The Speaker of the Law is the most dressed, and yeah, you know, it's about culturally indoctrinating them into Moreau's values of you want to be more human, mm-hmm. right? And that's the reward system. Well, but humans don't respect the law, 
right? The Beast Folk always respected the law anyways. And then it's like, well, then fuck it. Yeah. But yeah, Charles Lawton's just so good in this movie. I just have to keep repeating that he's really good in this movie, Sarah. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, he's really good in this movie, Sarah. he is really good. There is one mild point that I need to address in this movie before we move on. It's something that I was thinking about watching this movie that I probably wouldn't have been thinking about if I hadn't seen a really good video essay on YouTube from a YouTuber called Pop Culture Detective. Okay. um, Where he identifies a trope that Loda is basically a prime example of. Uh, It's a trope he calls Born Sexy Yesterday. Oh, sexy, but no smarts. Yeah, like, essentially the idea behind this trope is it's an adult, sexually available, attractive woman who nevertheless is ignorant to the ways of the world and thus totally naive and therefore in a position for the hero to take full advantage of as her first ever man. Um, Typically these are, like, native women from exotic locales in stories, Mm -hmm. or... Uh, Another good example is, like, the movie Splash with Daryl Hannah, um, or even, like, Tron Legacy with Olivia Wilde's character in that film. There was uh, some critiques of the latest Wonder Woman possibly falling into that trope. Yeah, I think that movie uh, sidesteps that trope fairly well because... Totally. um, ...she isn't taken advantage of. But certainly the, the essential thing about this idea is that It's um, a woman who is adult enough for it to be appropriate to have a sexual relationship with, but naive enough that the shittiest dude can be the best dude because he's the first dude. Yeah. This movie engages with that trope and then ends up veering away because Loda doesn't become Parker's primary love interest. But again, the question that I find myself wondering is... Would he have stayed faithful to Ruth if he hadn't have learned the truth? Meaning, if he didn't know that Loda was a panther woman, Mm. would he have taken advantage of this sexy but naive woman? Because that really, to me, that question and the fact that it kind of goes unanswered really affects how I think of Parker as a character. Yeah, I (laughs) totally with you there about kind of side-eyeing Parker a whole lot. Yeah, because it's, it's just, like, left to his own devices. What would he have done? It becomes hard to judge his actions when the choice is sort of taken out of his hands. There's something that Moreau says in the movie about, like, putting them together and attraction and monotony would do the work. Like, as long as I put two good-looking young people in a room together long enough, eventually they're just going to get bored and bone. Like... <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about the fear. Yeah, absolutely. We've kind of already talked about it, but at the very surface level, I guess, or at most explicit, um, the fear of assault on Loda and Ruth mm-hmm. um, being in danger from the beast folk. Mm-hmm. But I think, like, as we've also kind of pointed out, there's, uh, I guess, like a more deeper philosophical, I guess, fear about these blurred lines between, like, Man and Beast. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I definitely picked up on that. I think it's sort of similar to what we identified in Murders in the Rue Morgue about playing on those fears of 
what evolution implies for the relationship between the two and the possibility of hybridity and the threat of bestiality, that sort of stuff. I think it goes a step beyond that, though. Mm. Because Murders in the Remorque is very, like, for the purity of the human race, I guess? Right. Whereas this film, I feel like it blurs the lines more because, like, it has the beast folk at the end freaking out about, like, we're not men, we're not beasts, Mm -hmm. we're things, what are we? We're things... Um, and just kind of coming to that realization. So even they are, like, horrified by, like, being neither one of these things wholly. Yes. But I think because we have such a great villain in Lawton, in Moreau, we're left kind of going, like, yeah, the beast folk are beasts, and that's, like, blah, but man can be as terrible as Moreau Mm -hmm. as well. And even as terrible as Montgomery, who has, like, switched sides a few times. Yeah. We're not told why he's going to jail before he joins Moreau on this island. But it's some kind of indiscretion. Yeah, professional indiscretion, which I feel like, you know, you're, you're like... Yeah, it's there's a wink and a nudge away from realizing what that means, right? Yeah. Montgomery has been an accomplice to these crimes to this cruelty but then like changes so like maybe man isn't totally bad it Mm -hmm. feels like the film's trying to say but the fact that like our villains yes the initial like the explicit threat is from the beast folk but our true villains are the men yeah this film has a much more cynical attitude than murders in the room org which was simply threatening the purity of good old civilized man with the possibility of having anything to do with, you know, horrible, dirty gorillas, basically. And in this film, you know, what we're, what gets added is the hubris and the god complex from Frankenstein. Yes. Is what's sort of getting grafted on here, which lets us, you know, have that more cynical viewpoint of men aren't really much better than beasts to begin with. And might even be worse because, you know, the men in the story are the ones who enact the pain who set up the hierarchies, who abuse those underneath them um, and take advantage of them and are hypocritical about their own laws and societies. You know, it's a very Planet of the Apes hypocritical <laughs> view of men aren't really all that much better and in some cases might be worse. Yeah, the beast folk follow the law. Exactly. They're a threat because they aren't civilized, but civilized men are what created them in the first place. Exactly. So that's why I feel this is kind of a step above remorse. Yeah, it's it's also in like execution, <laughs> but yeah. In terms of like philosophical themes, I guess it does so as well. Yeah, it's it's going deeper and having a bit more to say about those themes that remorse was a little more Definitely. surface yeah, a little more surface level about. I don't know about tepid is the right word, but just <laughs> yeah, just like the difference between like the kind of essay you might expect from a sixth grade student versus like a second year university student, right? Like, <laughs> you know, the difference between like Canada's great. I like my mom and dad, and like, but can you go into more detail about this? You know, I just feel that by combining 
these elements from Frankenstein and Murders in the Room Morgue. And actually having, like, Moreau be punished for that. Yes. Too. Whereas Frankenstein gets off scot-free and presumably gets to marry Elizabeth. Yeah, and gets, you know, some champagne or whatever at the end. Yeah. Yeah, like, the thing, and I think you mentioned this earlier, this movie is focused in its storytelling, and it's also committed to its content. And that's what enables Island of Lost Souls to kind of achieve its own identity and staying power after the fact. Is even if we've sort of explored these themes before, we're really going for it this time. Which is so interesting to think about, like, how 1932 started. Mm. And now we're ending 1932. Yeah. Just, like, in this one year, I would love to see, like, a graph of, like... Went for it, didn't go for it, <laughs> whatever. Just the d- the development of the horror genre in just this year alone. Well, and to think of the fact that, you know, this is Paramount, December, late December, 1932. Paramount's last horror film was Jekyll and Hyde, which was late December, 1931. So literally a year between these two Paramount films. And, you know, comparing those two versus what's come in between. Comparing yeah. films a lot like Ranking... Should we rank? Yeah, let's move into ranking. Cool, let's do it. So where about were you thinking for Island of Lost Souls? When I started looking at the list, um, I went straight to Murders in the Room Morgue. That makes sense. Currently sitting at number 19. And I was like, nope, this is going higher. Yeah, this would be better. And I found myself drawn to freaks at number 12. Okay, sure. So I feel like Below Freaks is my floor. Sure. Okay, so... So above The Fall of the House of Usher. Right. So there's the possibility this isn't as good as Freaks. Yeah, I think that they're both very similar in how grounded they feel. Mm -hmm. I think this is a better constructed film. Yeah. um, But it also didn't have to, like, deal with cutting and such from the censors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they just didn't release it. (laughs) (laughs) yeah but especially with the ending uh of the villain getting its comeuppance right yeah they both have the um the type of horror where the monsters and the fear are directed at the villain rather than at the hero yeah um so that's kind of why i was like drawn to freaks but i do feel like my ceiling is Above Vampire at number 10, mm. and the floor being to Freaks at number 12. Okay. So not as good as Cat in the Canary, then, in your eyes. Like, this movie had a lot of shadow, and it was great. And when it was, like, right there, it was used purposefully. But there's something about German Expressionism that I keep fucking love, and uh, Cat in the Canary has, like, more of it. But I am open to discussing where, where would you like to put it. I think we're going to end up having a bit of a discussion, so listeners, you might want to strap in, because this might be a bit of a battle. Um, my range is much higher than yours. Okay. Um, so, my floor is number five, Dracula, <laughs> which is to say that I think that that's where this movie goes above. Like, it's definitely better than Dracula. Okay. Um, but it, you know, but I wanted to talk about, is it better than Frankenstein? Yes, no. Because I think they hit on a lot of similar 
themes. My ceiling is number two. I think it's possible this is better than Old Dark House, but it's definitely not as good as Jekyll and Hyde. So my range is the highest I would put this as number two, the lowest I would put this as number five, which is a range of Old Dark House, Shortcut and Frankenstein. That's that's sort of the movies I'm I'm looking at with this one. So quite like an order of magnitude higher than your looking. So I guess I enjoyed this movie more than you did. It's not about enjoyment. I just feel like I don't really think, you know, to come back to, if we look at the movies that are between our ranges, like, I get what you're saying about the shadowy cinematography of The Cat and the Canary, but, like, I don't think an argument can really be made that, like, Cat and the Canary is a better horror film than Island of Lost Souls. I think Island of Lost Souls has the shadows, it has the atmospherics. If it's not to the same extent as Cat and the Canary, it's because it's not a haunted house movie like that is. But Cat and the Canary still is kind of a hokey comedy in some places. Mm-hmm. And we just finished talking about how like this movie really goes for it and commits in a way that we didn't even think Frankenstein did. I'm not comfortable saying that Phantom of the Opera is a better horror movie than this because ultimately Phantom sidesteps into other things a lot. You know, like, even if you wanted to talk about the lowest I could possibly go, it might be more around Nosferatu or Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. But those movies feel kind of primitive to me now, next to something like this. Uh, That, again, like, just has a lot of power in the way that it's not talking down or talking around what it's about. Can you unpack a little bit more about Nosferatu versus this film? They're both real good. Nosferatu, like Count Orlok as a villain, certainly has a lot of screen presence, that's for sure. And Nosferatu has its good set, good shadowy cinematography as well. But I think this film, on a narrative level, is certainly better paced. Nosferatu's a little long in the tooth in places. Uh, it, it just... It just drags sometimes. It takes forever to get to the Count's castle. It kind of takes forever to get out of the Count's castle. They run after, not Renfield, but... uh, German Renfield. Yeah, Knock. They run after Knock through a field for like ten minutes. Forgot about that. And then, you know, we finally get to like, oh yes, now that I've read it five times in the book, I know that I need to get him to die by the light of the sun. And then boom, he's dead the end. So the pacing in Nosferatu, as, as, as harrowing as that movie can be, means that I'm not as on the edge of my seat as I am throughout the whole of Island of Lost Souls. Can you unpack why you're looking at this film above Dracula? Yeah, I think um, ultimately it's the fact that Dracula, even though we, we talk a lot about Dracula sort of being very tight, uh, especially compared to the Spanish version. But Dracula's still got, like, a lot of loose ends. What happened to Lucy? What happened to the brides? You know, we've talked already about the fact that we kind of prefer Parker in this movie to Harker in that film. Um, the The heroes of this film, you know, one of the things I think this movie has in common with Old Dark House is that I like the heroes and I want to see them get out alive. Whereas, like, I'd totally be fine if Bela Lugosi just murdered the heck out of Dr. Seward 
in that film just to shut him up. Like, so I think that's one of the reasons I like it more than Dracula. Dracula is a movie that rests on, you know, Bela Lugosi and Dwight Fry and Edward Van Sloan. And I think this movie, even though Charles Lawton clearly is the lead focus, everyone else is good enough that the movie just doesn't die the second Charles Lawton isn't on the screen, you know? So, I'm willing to look at this range. You've made a case for why moving it up to this range Mm -hmm. makes sense to me. And so, like, I I did want to sort of dive into, like, the this versus Frankenstein question. Because, on the one hand, you know, we've already talked about Moreau kind of being a better version of the mad scientist character than Frankenstein, which partially comes out of the fact that Frankenstein couldn't quite decide if Henry was going to be the sympathetic romantic lead or the person who needs to get knocked down with the wrath of God, you know, whereas this movie's made its choice. And I think that's in this movie's favor a bit. On the other hand, you know, Frankenstein's got, like, the, the creation scene, you know, where they, they create the monster and, like, a lot of really memorable, great moments. Both Moreau and Frankenstein get to have, like, a I-know-what-it-feels-like-to-be-God line, but they're in very different contexts and and deliveries. I think what it comes down to is what the people making the films were bringing to it. Mm -hmm. In the Frankenstein episode, we talked a lot about how Whale and, to an extent, Clive were adding this subtext, I guess, Mm -hmm. about um, persecution as someone who's gay. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, they kind of took what was in the book about reproduction without a woman Mm -hmm. and and, and took it to another level. Yes. And expanded it that way. In doing so, they had to make Victor, or I guess his name's Henry, Henry Frankenstein, a sympathetic character. Absolutely. What's really interesting is they kept the monster being sympathetic as well. Uh-huh. And I really love how well it showed the cycles of abuse and your reading, especially of, like, the father character. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if that's fully what they intended, especially with the father figure uh, at the time, but the fact that we can bring this additional layer, the the theme of abuse from parental figures is clear in the novel. Yes. Um, so the way it's been able to sustain these themes of horror and morphing through the years, I think is really powerful. Yeah. My problem with the 1931 Frankenstein is that it feels disjointed to me in a lot of places. The tone bounces around a lot. The pacing bounces around a lot. The story doesn't feel, and I talked about this in the episode, the story doesn't feel very well constructed. It kind of has some holes and some things that just don't quite connect very well, um, despite the fact that I think thematically, as we've said, it's very on point. And I've never fully been satisfied with the ending, of course, of Frankenstein. So this is a very interesting question that I think we can talk about, because it, it applies to a lot of movies, which is, you know, the question of what's superior, a flawed film that's a little messy 
but has a lot to say and says it in interesting ways, or like a more focused, more narratively complete experience that, you know, has its eyes on the prize, as it were, but maybe isn't as um, thematically rich because of it. Basically, you know, focus versus breadth. Um, because I do think Frankenstein it doesn't quite hit the bullseye because it's a little all over the place, but the fact that it is all over the place is what enabled us to pull so much out of it, right? Whereas Island of Lost Souls, there's it's really clear what's going on and who the villain is. There's no question of whether you should feel anything for Moreau. He's an asshole, and you know what's going on in this movie, but because the movie made those choices to really say, like, here's what these characters' roles are going to be, it allows the story to move at that clip and keep you engaged. And, you know, it says what it says really well, even if it's saying a lot less. And they both do manage to have a bit of that complicated morality thing going on. With Frankenstein, our two main characters are both sympathetic in Island of Lost Souls, our villains, it's a question of the identity of man. Yeah. Who is really the evil one. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, is the monster Moreau, or is it, you know, Bela Lugosi, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the other thing about it is, like, what I like about both movies is they both have scripts that feel willing to talk about what's going on in them, in the sense of, like, they're not talking down. You know, everybody gets to have some fairly weighty speeches, I guess, about things. Um, but part of me prefers the cleanliness, as it were, of the script of Island of Lost Souls and its focus over Frankenstein, which I get what it's going for, but it feels like it trips over itself a couple times. And I, and I wanted more from Frankenstein in a way that I didn't want more from Island of Lost Souls. It kind of did its job and got out. But then again, you know, you're basically saying, like, do you prefer a well-made bag of potato chips or, like, a kind of messy but otherwise very tasty, like, three-course meal? You know what I'm saying? I think I prefer the breadth. Yeah? Yeah, at least in this case. And I prefer the focus. So where does that put us? Uh, tie? No. Um. <laughs> I think it means that I'm not going to be able to talk you up any higher than this for no. sure. No. So I might be able to get it above Frankenstein, but no higher is I kind of where we're, yes. we're saying. So in talking about the breadth versus focus, we're kind of talking about how well it communicates mm-hmm. its horror. Yes. Another thing that we've talked about in ranking in previous episodes has been what it gives to the genre. That's true. I mean, Frankenstein certainly gives a lot. Yes. But it's also taking a lot uh, from earlier plays of Frankenstein, but also earlier films like The Magician. It's sort of on this continuum. Island of Lost Souls, I, I, I really wanted to ask you, did this film kind of scratch that itch you were having for a horror movie that was going to push the boundaries further Yet again, audiences at the time certainly felt it was boundary-pushing. But, you know, after stuff like The Mummy um, and some of the other films that have kind of been a little more tepid, did this really hit that place for you? I think in 
its themes and stuff for sure, but I don't really know. Like I, I, I maybe it's just because I love Frankenstein, the novel, the movie mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. that I'm having a hard time putting that bias aside. Well, and I mean, and Charles Lawton couldn't have played the Frankenstein in that movie. You know, no. Colin Clive is perfect for it. Yes. Um, so, you know, they aren't interchangeable characters. No. For me, like, why I'm still having this discussion with you is because endings are very important for me. How a movie ends affects so much of how I feel coming out of it, and the ending of the James Whale Frankenstein has never felt like it quite got to where it wanted to for me. Uh, even before we get to the fact that Henry survives and the last line of the movie's uh, joke about champagne, just something about that ending never quite got to the power it needed to for it to work for me. I know you've never really liked the mountain chase on a set. Yeah. But I, like, I really like it. For me, the problem was always that, and I talked about this in the episode, that I really wish the monster could have confronted Frankenstein more directly to have had dialogue in those ending moments. And for the movie to have decided whose damn side it was on, because it really wants you to be sympathetic and yet afraid of Frankenstein, the monster, and the villagers, kind of back and forth a lot. And what I admire about Island of Lost Souls is that it feels like you're there in a way. It feels like maybe you came onto this island with Parker and now you're escaping it with Parker. And even though you've made it out with your life and even though Moreau's had his comeuppance, nothing ever is really going to be the same again for you in a way that the James Will Frankenstein tries to play down and say like, well, that was bad, but hey, here's some champagne. So that's, that's why I think I'm having this trouble where, where I really want to put Island of Lost Souls higher. Is, is because it commits and, and gives it the right ending. I see where you're coming from. I guess my concern about going for focus rather than breadth is I worry about things getting simplistic. Yeah, I mean, I'm not in favor of simplicity, for sure, but I think we have a lot of different criteria that we certainly rank things using, And oftentimes, certain weapons only come out of the scabbard when we have these close, close races. Yeah. One thing I'll bring up to you is that, you know, because you've sort of said you've got this bit of a Frankenstein bias. I really do. um, Is some of the things that I find lacking in the 1931 Frankenstein, you know, we do have Bride of Frankenstein coming up eventually. And if your issue is like, no, Frankenstein should be higher on the list. I think Bride is a film that would maybe give us a chance to re-examine some of these ideas and themes that you love so much in Frankenstein to the sense that they won't be, like, underrepresented on the list. (laughs) I'm negotiating (laughs) based on possible future episodes. (laughs) But you kind of get what I mean? I do. And, uh, like, I don't want to say, like, just add the caveat, 
I'm not saying that Island of Lost Souls is simplistic. Yeah. Because I think there's a lot going on here. You're afraid that we're valuing simplicity as a precedent. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, when, as someone who likes to have meat on her media, mm-hmm. I like the breadth that's in Frankenstein. For sure. But I, I do worry that this might set a precedent. But I just admire... Sometimes you need both, right? Like... There's the the movies that you can really dig into and pry apart like a vampire, but other times, like I mean, it's gonna be a long time till we get to this. But other times, you get a movie like Halloween where it's just like admirable to just see something, you know, as H.G. Wells would maybe want, pick one thing to do and then just do that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So is that a? Are we conceding? I think so. So again. This is on the strength of this film's focus and commitment to what it's doing. And it is worth saying that this is a commitment to the genre that this film's showing after, you know, a year of this genre evolving. And I also feel it's worth awarding mostly because, as I mentioned in the intro, problems with censorship means that we might not see something this committed for a while. Frankenstein's still really good. Yes. No shade Which on is it. why it's still in the top five. For sure. So entering the list at number four, Island of Lost Souls from 1932, directed by Earl C. Kenton. If you would like to see this list, you can visit our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can see where other films rank. And if you would like to contest this or any other ranking, we have an appeals box where, um, yeah, you can submit your appeal, your concerns, your questions, anything of the sort. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday evening on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can find us on your podcasting app so long as it uh, can find the feeds from those two services. What are we watching next week? Next week, we're probably going to be scrolling down the list a bit, but I don't really know. Wolf blood? (laughs) Hopefully not that low. It's going to be, I think, interesting regardless, because we're going to be watching sort of a 1930s equivalent of a mockbuster, uh, which is to say a cheap B-movie made to cash in on a higher-budget movie's success. We're watching a horror film starring Lionel Atwell and Faye Ray and Melvin Douglas, but it's directed and made by the crew who did The Monster Walks. Um, It's the uh, independent film The Vampire Bat from 1933. Not The Vampire Sucks? (laughs) (laughs) I hope it doesn't suck. Oh, boy. No, (laughs) just The Vampire Bat. (laughs) Okay. Should be a good time, though. Yeah, I look forward to it. All right. We'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.